Evidence and Answers. What are the essentials of the Christian faith? The psalmist wrote, The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. That's taken from Psalm 19.7. That means scripture is sufficient. We don't need to look beyond the written word of God for any essential doctrines. There is nothing necessary beyond what is recorded in God's word. Pat offers listeners a basic understanding of the Christian faith that will kindle a lifelong love for truth, which is foundational to maturity in Christ. Here are theologically sound explanations of the biblical concepts every Christian should know, broken down in a way that we can all understand. You're tuned to Evidence and Answers radio broadcast with your host, Pat Zucrin. Pat is a popular teacher, speaker, and author in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. In this episode of Evidence and Answers, Pat will be going into detail about the essentials of the Christian faith, so we too will be able to distinguish truth from error. Here's part one. On a recent mission to an African country, I met with a group of pastors from various denominations. These pastors face many challenges, none more important than the threat of Islam. Many Christians, even pastors in the area, had converted to Islam, and with the funding coming from the Arab nations, it seemed this religion would overrun the city. I was asked to teach on Islam and equip pastors and Christians to engage the ideology and reach Muslims for Christ. But what happened on the first day was quite discouraging. We discovered the pastors were divided and refused to work with one another because they had a bitter disagreement on a particular issue. This kept them divided from working together despite the ever-growing threat of Islam. The disagreement was on the method of baptism. Those who believed in full-body immersion denounced those who sprinkled as heretics, and those who sprinkled denounced those who immersed as heretics. While with the looming threat of Islam on the horizon, it was discouraging to see Christians divided over a non-essential issue like the mode of baptism. Well, unfortunately, this is all too common, isn't it? Much of the division which Christians and churches have divided upon are secondary, non-essential issues. In fact, the biggest division in the history of the church was on a non-essential issue. It can be a discouraging thing to see Christians fighting and dividing over secondary issues. As believers in Christ today, more than ever, we need to know what are the essentials of the Christian faith upon which we are to take a stand and not compromise, and which issues are non-essential in which we shouldn't divide over, but rather extend grace to one another, discuss and debate these issues, but in the end, continue to stand together and remember we're brothers and sisters in Christ and maintain the fellowship and unity in the body of Christ. Here's a saying that has been a helpful guideline for Christians for many centuries. On essentials, unity. On non-essentials, liberty and in all things, charity. But what are the essentials upon which we do not compromise? Well, this week I'll present the 16 essentials of the Christian faith upon which every believer in Christ should be united upon and upon which we take our stand. These are important to know because if you're joining a church or a mission organization or enrolling in a Christian school or college, they should stand upon these essentials. On other secondary issues, that's 
where you'll have to decide. But on these essentials, can we work with this church or this denomination or this mission organization? It's important to know what are the essentials upon which we must stand. Well, the first question is, how do we determine what are the essentials of the Christian faith? Well, essential doctrines are those that are connected with salvation or the message of the gospel and the doctrines that uphold the gospel message. The essential focus is on the nature of God, the gospel, and the word of God. Let me briefly go through the list of 16 essentials and then I'll elaborate on them a little bit more. First, there's God's unity, that there is one and only one God who created the heavens and the earth. Second, it's the triunity of God or the doctrine of the Trinity. Third, Christ's deity, that he is 100% God. Fourth, Christ's humanity, that he is also 100% human. Fifth, human depravity, that we are sinners in need of God's grace. Sixth, the virgin birth of Christ. Seventh, Christ's sinlessness. Eighth, Christ's atoning death upon the cross. Ninth, Christ's bodily resurrection. Tenth, the necessity of grace. Eleventh, the necessity of faith. Twelfth, Christ's bodily ascension into heaven. Thirteenth, Christ's priestly intercession for us now in heaven. Fourteenth, Christ's bodily, literal, second coming. And the last two uphold the salvation message. Without them, it is not possible to know what the salvation message is. Fifteenth is the inspiration and inerrancy of the Bible. Now, inerrancy and inspiration, it's not necessary for someone to understand that fully for salvation, but it provides the foundation for our salvation. It makes the knowledge of the gospel possible and knowable. Our faith and teaching cannot be firmly established unless we know that God is the author of the Bible and that it presents his message without error. And finally, the 16th is the literal or the proper interpretation of the Bible. Without understanding how to properly interpret the Bible, we cannot properly interpret scripture and discern truth from error. Cults, we know, do not apply this method and thus twist the scriptures to fit their unorthodox teachings. Now, those are the 16 essentials. They are presented in the early church creeds. In the first 500 years, they are in the church creeds. For example, one of the earliest creeds of the church is the Apostles' Creed which was given in the second century. And it reads this, I believe in God the Father Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified and died and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he arose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Whence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Church, the communion of the saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the flesh, and life everlasting. Amen. You can see in that creed the essentials that I talked about 
are there. Or in one of the most important creeds that came in 325 AD, the Nicene Creed, which states, We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made for us and our salvation. He came down from heaven, was incarnate of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, and became truly human. For our sake he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified, who has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy, universal, and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. In those early creeds, such as the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed, we see the essential doctrines of the Christian faith. Notice also what is not included in the essentials of the faith. The sign gifts, have they ceased? Are they still in operation? The age of the universe, styles of worship, mode of baptism, role of women in the church. These are secondary or non-essential issues. They're not part of the essential doctrines of the Christian faith. Unfortunately, as I stated, we see so many Christians and churches bitterly divided over non-essential issues. Now, is it necessary to believe all 16 essential doctrines to be saved? No, what is necessary is explained in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, which is the essence of the gospel. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved. So here's the essence of the gospel, which we must all believe. For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. After that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as one abnormally born. That is the essence of the gospel there, which one must believe to be saved. So what was included in 1 Corinthians 15? That there is one God. Christ is his son. We are sinners in need of grace. That Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead. We can be saved with an incomplete understanding of these 16. However, it is these 16 doctrines which are essential to make the full understanding of salvation possible because they uphold the gospel message. So our guideline, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, charity. On essentials, unity. Christians have stood on these essentials for centuries. This is what the apostles taught and upon which they taught us to stand. When we deny the essentials, we run into danger of falling into liberalism or heresy. Now, in non-essentials, 
liberty. The failure to recognize liberty on the non-essentials has been a tragedy for the church. When we make non-essentials essentials, this leads to legalism. Dividing over non-essentials has been very damaging to the church. You know, the greatest example occurred in 1054 A.D. when the greatest division in the history of the church occurred over a non-essential issue. The Eastern Orthodox Church believed the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father, while the Western Latin churches believed He proceeds from the Father and the Son. We've seen churches split over modes of baptism, over limited or unlimited atonement, the gifts of the Spirit, the time of the Second Coming, and other secondary issues. But remember, on essentials, we're to stand united. On non-essentials, liberty. And in all things, charity. Or to extend grace and love to one another. Now briefly, let me go over the first part of the essentials of the Christian faith. First, God's unity. That only one God exists. Monotheism was at the heart of Old Testament teaching. The great Shema, Deuteronomy 6, 4. Hear, Israel, the Lord our God. Our Lord is one. And it's repeated throughout the Old Testament, especially in verses like Isaiah 44.6 and 45.18 and 46.9 and other verses. And it's repeated in the New Testament. The Shema, Deuteronomy 6.4, was repeated in the Gospels, Mark 12, chapter 29. And monotheism is repeated throughout the New Testament in passages like 1 Corinthians 8.4, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 6, and 1 Timothy 2, 5. Perversions of this essential leads to false teaching. For example, Mormonism teaches that there are many gods in the universe who are once men. In fact, the God of this earth was once a man who through his good life became a god. And it is the hope of all Mormon men to follow in such footsteps. The second essential is God's triunity or the Trinity, that there is one God revealed in three distinct persons. We see the Trinitarian formula in several places in the New Testament, most clearly in Matthew chapter 28, verse 20, where at the end of the Great Commission, Jesus says, Make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Now, notice he says, in the name, singular, not plural. He doesn't say names. He says, in the name, singular, showing that they are one in nature. But then there's a definite article before each person. In the name, singular, of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. The definite article in front of each person shows individuality. So we have one in nature, but three in person. And this Trinitarian formula is repeated several times in the New Testament. 2 Corinthians 13, verse 14. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 4 through 6. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2. And Revelation 1, verses 4 through 5. Three distinct persons are called or identified as God in the Bible. God the Father, John 6, 27. God the Son, John 1, 1. And in Acts chapter 5, the Holy Spirit is also identified as God. There are three distinct persons. At the baptism, all three appear. 
God the Father with a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, Jesus Christ, arising out of the water and the Holy Spirit coming in the form of a dove. And to a lot of people's surprise, we see the Trinity foreshadowed even in the Old Testament. One of the passages that may allude to the Trinity is Isaiah 63, verses 7 through 10. That verse reads, I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord, the praises of the Lord, according to all that the Lord has granted us, and the great goodness of the house of Israel, that he has granted them according to his compassion and according to his steadfast love. For he said, Surely they are my people, children who will not deal falsely. And he became their Savior. Now in Titus 2.13, it says that Jesus Christ is our God and Savior. In all affliction, he was afflicted, and the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old, but they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Therefore, he turned to be their enemy, and he himself fought against them. So there in that passage, if you study it, you see there are three persons mentioned there, all connected with the title of deity. Therefore, that's the doctrine of the Trinity. One God revealed in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And those who have denied this essential doctrine, unfortunately, fall into the kingdom of the cults or heretical teaching. For example, a group called the Oneness Pentecostals. That was a heresy of modalism introduced to us by a guy named Sabellius in the 3rd century AD. Modalism teaches that there is only one person of God who appears in three different forms. In other words, God the Father will sometimes come in the form of the Son or in the form of the Holy Spirit. So he comes in three different modes. So there's one person who comes in three different forms. That's the heresy of modalism. Or we have the ancient Arian heresy of the 4th century, which lays the foundation for the Jehovah Witnesses, that there is one God, God the Father, and that Jesus Christ is the first thing that God created. Therefore, Jesus is inferior in nature to God the Father. That would be the Arian heresy or modern-day Jehovah Witness theology. So those are essentials regarding the nature of God. Then we have the following essentials, which are in regard to the nature of Christ. The third essential is the deity of Christ, that Jesus Christ is 100% God. Jesus identified himself as God several times in the Gospels and in his teachings. John 8:58. He said, before Abraham was born, I am, quoting Exodus 3.14. The apostles taught that Jesus Christ was God. Matthew 1.23, his name shall be Emmanuel, which means God with us. John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So in several places throughout the New Testament, Jesus Christ is identified as God the Son. Now, along with the deity of Christ comes also the doctrine of the humanity of Christ, the fourth essential, that Jesus Christ is 100% human, the God-man, 100% God, 100% 
human. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 15 states that Christ was human in all ways except he did not sin. Christ had a human birth. Galatians 4 4 he was born of the seed of woman. Matthew 1.23 states that he had a biological mother. Mary had a nine-month pregnancy and a normal birth. Luke chapter 1 and chapter 2. In fact, Luke chapter 2 says that Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and favor with God and with men. So he grew in his knowledge and understanding as humans do. He had emotions. He wept in John chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 5 verse 7 states that he offered up prayers with vehement cries and tears. Luke chapter 4, in the temptation in the desert, says Jesus got hungry. On the cross, John chapter 19, Jesus said, I'm thirsty. So Jesus was 100% God in nature. He never gave up his deity, but he took on human flesh and became 100% human at the incarnation. Now, the importance of understanding this is critical because Christ is the mediator between God and man, 1 Timothy 2.5. Therefore, he must be both God and man. As God, he could reach to God and be the perfect sacrifice. As man, he could pay the death penalty for our sin and reach man. Hebrews 4.15 states, Because he was human, he was tempted in all ways, as we are, so he can be a sympathetic high priest and intercede for us. Christ was the full revelation of the Father, John 1.14, and therefore gives us a greater understanding of God. So it's important to understand the humanity of Christ. John wrote, whoever denies the humanity of Christ or Christ coming in the flesh has fallen into heresy. He warns us of that in 1 John chapter 4, verse 2, and in 2 John verse 7. So those who deny the deity and the humanity of Christ would fall outside the camp of Christianity. You know, Gnostics deny that Christ came in the flesh. That's what John warned us about in his letters, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. The fifth and final one we'll go over today is the virgin birth of Christ. The Bible teaches that Christ was born supernaturally, though he was 100% God and 100% human. Though he was birthed by a mother, his conception, he was conceived supernaturally. Isaiah 7.14 and Matthew 1.23 says that he was born of a virgin supernaturally. Luke chapter 1, the angel reveals to Mary that the Holy Spirit will come upon her. And though she was a virgin, she shall give birth to Jesus Christ. In fact, in John chapter 8, verse 41, even the enemies of Christ were aware that there was something unique about his birth. Now, this doctrine is important for a couple of reasons. First, in order for Christ to be sinless, he cannot be conceived in the flesh or he would share in our sinful nature. But he was conceived supernaturally by the Holy Spirit. See, anyone born in a natural way and conceived in a natural way would share in our sin nature. Those who teach other than a virgin birth would fall into a kind of false teachings. For example, Mormonism teaches that it wasn't the Holy Spirit, but God the Father, who appeared in human form and had sexual relations with Mary to produce the physical body for the spirit child Jesus. That would be unorthodox or heretical teaching. So here's just some of the 
16 essentials of the Christian faith upon which all Christians should be united and upon which we should stand. We'll continue the rest of the 16 essentials next time. Until then, with major threats coming from the world today, it is important that Christians today are united on the essentials of the Christian faith and keep the unity of fellowship we have in Christ and not divide on the non-essentials. Let's stand firm on the essentials and extend grace to one another on the non-essentials. Remember our guideline on essentials, unity, on non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, charity. God bless you, and we'll see you next time here on Evidence and Answers. We've run out of time for today. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers Radio Broadcast. We hope you enjoyed part one of Pat's study on the essentials of the Christian faith. Evidence and Answers relies on the generous donations from you, our listeners. If you would like to partner with us, please start with prayer and then log on to our website to donate. That's evidenceandanswers.org. Join us here next time for part two of this exciting study on the essentials of the Christian faith. Right here with your host, Dr. Pat Zucrin.